things look a little bit off. Uh, in order to drive this point home, I actually put some chalk on my hands and did handprints. Anyone notice these handprints up here that I did on either side of the black screens there just to help drive that point home? Now, unfortunately, it's probably going to be the only thing you see for the rest of the time as I preach here. But the, the point is, is that whenever we take a step back from our lives, it's a good opportunity to reflect and maybe do a little bit of touch-up for stuff in our life. Maybe we have opinions of certain things or people or you know, we have certain ideologies that we have that maybe it's a good idea every once in a while. Let's just touch that up a little bit. And it's the same way with theology, where it's a good idea when we step back. How many of you have ever done this one before, where if somebody asks you what you believe, you say, hey, this is what I believe. And then they ask, well, why do you believe that? And you're like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember the why, but I know this is what I believe. And, uh, you know, but trust me, the why is really good. Let me just, let me go back and do a little bit of research. But it's good for us sometimes to take a step back, and that's the goal of this series, is for us to really understand the why of what we believe. So Pastor Lance, before he went out, he went through our denominations. There's 22 core essential doctrines that we have, and he picked out eight of them for us to kind of learn together, just for a little bit of touch-up here or there uh, for what we believe. So what I'm going to talk about today, is, as Pastor Lance mentioned on the video, is the doctrine of salvation. And before I had studied for this, I thought, man, this is, this is great. This is one of the most important just central tenets to Christianity, after I kind of went through everything, I realized that not only is it one of, I believe it is the most important doctrine that we hold, this, this, the cornerstone of what we believe. And the reason why I believe that is that if you remove that aspect or if you don't have an appropriate view of salvation, it completely empties out this relationship into this, it turns what we believe, this Christianity, into an empty religion. It removes itself of the person of who Jesus is and that relationship that we can have with, with him. So I'm super excited about it. Um, what I'm going to do today is that I'm going to be taking a look at three different questions that I'm going to answer when it comes to salvation. Uh, the first question is, is, what was the first question? Why? I just want to make sure. I did them in order. I don't want to do things out of order. The first question is why we need this salvation. The second question is how. It's like, all right, now that I know why I need it, but how do I get it? And then lastly is when. When does this come into effect? Is this something, the salvation I get when I die, or is this something that I experience now? How does that balance between the two? So first we're going to take a look at why. Why do we need to be saved? Is this an actual problem? I mean, I, I, I hear you telling me that I need a savior, but is this something that I actually need? If Pastor Lance were to give me eight weeks to just to preach on salvation, I'd probably spend three weeks on the why, because it's huge. It encompasses everything from the first chapters in Genesis to the last chapters in Revelation, as I'm about to show you. This, just why we need a Savior and what this is, is huge. So I'm going to go take us on a little journey. So come along, strap in. Along with this journey, we have some, uh, I, I get I kind of nerded out a little bit and made some slides. I don't know if we call them slides anymore because they're not actual slides. But we have some slides. I even bought this. Look at this. A little, a little, little pen here. I'm, I'm someone who likes little gadgets. Um, the thing that's nice about me and that my wife loves, um, one of the many things she loves about me, is that the gadgets that I like are not like the iWatches and all these expensive gadgets. Like, I bought this for $7 and was so proud of myself that I bought a new pen for it. So, uh, we're going to go on this journey, this kind of this theological, this theological journey explaining why we need salvation. So, the first slide, 
that I want to put up here is this picture of the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis, that God, from the very beginning, he has the Garden of Eden. It's, it's this picture of heaven on earth. And you see here, right here, you have like the little throne and you have some cherubim. But then also in the same circle here, the same realm, you have a mountain, trees, and a stream. And I'll do that for these people over here. Um, <laughs> but, but you see here that, there's, that this realm is together. It's, it's crazy. When you read the story, it says that God would come down on earth and would stroll through the garden in the heat of, or in the coolness of the afternoon. I mean, it's crazy that you can, you can just be walking around kind of like washing your clothes. I guess I didn't have clothes in the Garden of Eden. I'm talking about that. You're washing something in the, in the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden you just see kind of God walking through the trees, that heaven and earth were combined together. This, this crazy picture. And then all of a sudden we know what happens when we read the Bible? It says that Adam and Eve, they decided to eat a fruit from this tree. And what this tree represented was that Adam and Eve knew what was right and wrong. And they were going to be the ones to define morality as opposed to listening to what God said. And when this happened, it says that Adam and Eve were expelled out of the Garden of Eden. And then humanity gets sent on this journey where this kingdom that once was together, look what, notice what color that is. That will become important. And all of a sudden, you have a separation from God and man. So go to the second slide here. Red and blue make purple. So get it? Look at that. Uh, I'm, super, I'm super excited about these slides, if you can't already tell. <laughs> but you see here, after, after the fall, you see two different, instead of one realm together, where heaven and earth are combined, you see them split into two. And the Bible throughout Genesis through Revolution, Revolution, Revelation uses these different words to describe it. They describe the heavenly realm as heaven, the kingdom of God, eternal life. And they describe this world that we're in as the world, this present age, the age of sin and death. If you've heard terms like, we live in a fallen world, that's what this is. We're separated apart. And so... We have this issue where all of a sudden we're in this world and we start sinning and we keep contributing to the sin of this world. And I can kind of describe it when, whenever you sin, there are two consequences that happen. There's the actual you know, sin that you commit. I can go ahead and let's say I have my $7 laser pointer that I have. And if I were to steal this from somebody, that's a sin, right? And I can always give the laser pointer back and apologize, maybe give them, you know, 70 cents on top of it as like reparation or something. But as we sin and we commit sin against other people, there are scars that are left behind. How many of you who have been wounded by somebody else and you can ask for, they ask for forgiveness and you can forgive them, but there's still that wound that's there, some emotional damage or kind of like a contagion, this vandalism that gets left. And as we are around this world, we're born into this sinful world, but we contribute to it. We cause damage to the literal environment around us. In the Old Testament, they describe it, the priests describe it as sin amongst your brother and sister, but also the land itself is sinful. It's kind of this environment around that gets damaged. So God is like, all right, well, we got a problem. One easy solution is I can just kind of get rid of that. I can just kind of wipe that out. The problem is, is that we are in that world. This evil that's in the world and this sin, it's in us. It ain't so easy just to separate out. So God decided through the Old Testament to make a way where these two worlds that are separate can combine together once again the way it was. 
So if we go to the third slide here, he's kind of pushing these things together. See the red and the blue and the purple? Look at all this, man. This is magical. So it kind of moves together. And in the center of where these areas come together is the temple. And there was a practice that happened in the Old Testament. And the practice was where you would bring an animal to sacrifice. So you would, you would come in, you'd bring an animal that you raised that was yours, you'd lay your hands on it, and then your sins would transfer from you, you know, the, uh, this picture, the symbol, would transfer from you to the animal, and the animal would be laid up, and then they'd kill the animal, and then all of a sudden your sins would be forgiven. And I'm, I'm somebody, as you can tell, I, 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 I eat a lot of meat. I like, I like to eat meat. Some of you ate some of, ate some of the things I prepared for the chili cook-off. It's a lot of meat. Yeah. Can't remember what place I came in, but it was, it was good. So some of you, but, uh, but, uh, I, I'm somebody who, like, I, I wouldn't be described by most people as like an animal lover. I mean, I have animals. I've had pets. We've rescued dogs, but if I were transported back in time and were to see this in person, I'll tell you what, my stomach would turn. I mean, can you imagine having some animal that you've had around for years, ever since this animal was born, to come up and to be laid down and to be killed right in front of you? And the symbols and the weight of that, of saying, wow, through my actions and my decisions, I deserve what happened to that animal. And it's through that animal sacrifice I'm made clean. I mean, it's, it's gruesome, but it's meant to be. It's that powerful symbol. The Bible also talks about how the priests would collect the blood, which would represent life, and they would even spread it around the temple, cleaning up this environment, this world that had been fallen. And that's all well and good. We've been doing this for a while, except we find out that God's chosen people, the Israelites, whose name literally means the ones who struggle with God, struggled with God. And this sacrifice, they lived, they lived up to their namesake, all right, I'll let you what. And as they began to walk through the sacrifice, they just refused to do the sacrifices, or the sacrifices didn't mean anything. They would say, all right, I'll tell you what, here's some money, why don't you go ahead and get an animal and sacrifice it for me? And it, they would allow injustice to happen, and it wasn't something that was meaningful to them. So the prophet Isaiah stood up, to these people and said, hey, this beautiful thing that used to symbolize your redemption and your salvation now has become detestable to God. And one day, there's going to be a king from the line of David who will come down in the form of a servant who will once and for all get rid of all of this. A harsh message. And we know now that the person who took that place was Jesus when he came down on earth. So we can go to the next slide. That Jesus ended up filling up that picture. I almost kind of imagine, you know, Jesus is on earth and God using his, his hands and kind of taking these two realms and just pushing them together and saying, we're going to combine these things, whether you like it or not. And Jesus, when he was on earth, would do and say some interesting things. He would say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning like, hey, this heavenly... Ro- i got to use my pointer. Sorry. I, I, I did get some, some, some feedback from somebody who was there first service. He said, hey, I liked everything, but I have one piece of advice. And I was like, oh, man, tell me. Did I, did I, was my fly down? What happened? He said, you need to use the pointer more. You spent money on it. So there you go. So he would say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that this 
realm is here and now. It's not separate anymore. It's coming together. And he would, he would walk along and he would begin to heal people from diseases, some of the consequences of sin and death. He would raise people from the dead. And it was crazy what was going on. And what Jesus was doing is these words were mashing together into one. I kind of like this picture of the cross. And I just kind of imagine Jesus as he's on the cross, kind of just taking these two worlds with his hands and pulling them together through his death and resurrection. And the story of us in the Bible is us living right there in that purple. It's us right there where we're running away and we're trying to go back. And Jesus is like, oh, no, you don't, and pulls us right back in. And this is the story of the Bible. To finish the story in Revelation chapter 21, we see the final picture of what heaven will look like. We started with the Garden of Eden, and at the very end, we get to the last slide here. This picture of these worlds finally combining together called the new heaven and the new earth. Instead of the realm where heaven and earth are combined and it being a garden, it's been described as a city. I don't know what your views of what heaven will look like are. A lot of times you think of like clouds and angels and harps. But, you know, Revelation, it tells us it's going to be earth. There's going to be an actual city we're going to be around in. But it's going to be like it was back at the Garden of Eden where we were combined together. Almost unimaginable to think about what that would look like. So for those of you who decided to read through um, the Bible this year and like read it through the Bible in your plan, you don't have to do it anymore. I just basically summed up the entire Bible for you <laughs> in eight minutes. Amazing. But it's crazy that in the second chapter of Genesis and the second to last chapter in Revelation show us these two pictures of heaven and earth combined and all of the chapters in between are these two worlds mashing together and us kind of in the middle realm of this thing that we're fighting for us and God saying, I love you so much. I'm going to do everything I can to bring you in and us turning our backs and running as far away as we can and how God interacts with us. So this right here is the why. Why we need a savior. Because through our actions through the sin that we do, through the decisions that we make, we contribute not only in that sin against the person, but to this environment, to this contagion that's around. And God gave us a way out. His name was Jesus. So now we'll take a look at the how. How this happens. And I think that this is something, as I describe it, people can kind of maybe jive with and be like, oh, that makes sense. Like, I get it. I'm, I'm sinful. I've done some things in my life I'm not proud about. That sounds really good. This heaven on earth idea sounds great. Uh, let's go ahead and see what we can do and kind of move forward in that. So that sounds great. But here, oh man, who did it? Whose phone is it? <laughs> um, that's something that we can all identify with. But It's interesting. I think that there's a temptation nowadays in our world and kind of our walk to water down the message of the gospel. So Jesus was very clear when he was on this earth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he talked about how this is a free gift. There's nothing you have to do to receive this. All you have to do is open it. And sometimes there can be a temptation for us to let's let's put everything on a cosmic scale and as long as our good outweighs our bad, then that would go ahead and be enough. But when we do that, I think we miss the entire point of this wonderful relationship that we get to have with someone by the name of Jesus who's there. This relationship of having somebody who just would sacrifice for us. I mean, we we gave the picture of the, the animal sacrifice 
that you would see in front of us and how just horror that would be to see. I mean, imagine having a person, Jesus himself, and seeing that. I mean, it's, it blows any symbolism out of the water. So there's lots of different examples in the New Testament to look at, a couple of theological passages to take a look at on what this is. I decided to go ahead and give the first example of somebody receiving Jesus as their Savior in the Bible, the first person to ever go into heaven, somebody that we don't even know what this person's name was. It was his name in the Bible is just a criminal on the cross. In Luke 23, I'm going to go ahead and read this passage that happened, and this is just a great picture of how, how we receive salvation. It's, it's quick, but it's just so meaningful. So I'll go ahead and read it here. In Luke 23, we see this example. Jesus is up on the cross. He's fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said. He's kind of merging these two worlds together through his death and his resurrection. And we see two criminals, one on his right, one on his left, and there's this interaction. It says in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This, this criminal, we don't know his name in the Bible. History has told us that his name is Dismas. So we'll, I'll use Dismas. Um, Dismas was there, and he only has 39 words with Jesus that altered his existence forever. 39 words. I counted twice. Trust me, you don't have to, you don't have to look at it. It's 39. <laughs> what he did, though, was so powerful. He hearkened back to the picture of imagining yourself in front of that sacrifice with an animal. And he said three things that are just so powerful. He said, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Saying, me right here, I deserve all of this. Can you imagine just the weight of the meaning of what that sentence actually means? This this guy Dismas is up on a cross being crucified, and he's not saying, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. He's saying, I deserve every bit of this. Every bit of this I deserve. But this man here, the one you're making fun of, he's done nothing. He's innocent. He's that sacrifice that's doing it. And then lastly, he just says, remember me. I think of the picture of sitting and looking at that sacrifice, and it's such a beautiful picture of what we need to do in order for us to, how to get the salvation. It, sometimes we can overcomplicate it, but really it starts with just saying, man, I'm guilty. I am here. I deserve this. However, I don't have to bear this because this guy was innocent and he did this for me. Jesus, just remember me. I love this passage because for some people in this room maybe who have never decided to accept that salvation for the first time. It's a, it's a great picture of what to do. But I also love it because it's such an easy example. If 
you're ever faced with a situation, either with some of your kids or somebody else that's out there who's like, man, I, I hear about this Jesus guy and I, I think I want to follow him, but I don't really know what to do. That could be really intimidating. Like, how do I lead somebody from that one realm to the other realm? Just remember, don't even remember Luke 23, just remember a criminal on the cross and Google it on your phone and pull it up. And it's a great picture. It's 39 words that will change that person's life forever. So we got through the why, got through the how. The next question that we're going to address is the when. Remember when we started, it was a little bit like, what, I, get, I get why and how, but what does when have to do with anything? But when is a hugely important thing for us to realize. Because there's two different expressions of this salvation, of how it's laid out. One that we get to take part in now, but also another element that goes forward in, into the future. And so I'm going to take a look at these two different expressions, these expressions of salvation, of how they're played out with each other. So the first one is something called justification. Big churchy word. I've only ever read this word like in Bible college and theology or hear it here um, in a sanctuary. But this word justification, the definition is to declare righteous, to make one right with God. The Bible tells us that justification is like us coming before God and all of our sin and our clothes are just stained and Jesus, through his sacrifice, takes a robe. It says that we're clothed in his righteousness, like a, like a robe that just kind of comes around us to where when God looks at us, he only sees Jesus' righteousness on us. It represents a legal standing that when we're justified, when we accept this salvation, we are right. We are, we're all good with God. And this justification is a one-time thing. We only have to do it once. The way it, it, it doesn't work, we're like, all right, I say, I say this prayer, I mean it, I go outside of the parking lot, and all of a sudden someone cuts me off, I say something I shouldn't, and I'm right back to the beginning point where I need to be justified. No, it doesn't work that way. Once we do it, we have it. We don't have to do anything more again to receive it. We have it. We are right with God. We are clothed in his righteousness. It's still there, just it can't be seen. It, it is, we only see Christ's righteousness coming off of us. And through this, it allows us that when we die, we get this wonderful thing called heaven, where for all of our existence, we get that picture of the new heaven and the new earth together, where earth and heaven are together and merged together. So I think that if we were to realize this, I, I don't, this is something that when it comes with salvation, we really need to, to understand, because if we truly sat down and thought about this, this would change the way we live our lives, realizing that, man, when we die, there's this whole other thing that is going to just be there for all eternity. So I have an object lesson that I'm going to use. I love me a good object lesson. Um, so I hid this little thing here. This is an object lesson that uh, I stole from somebody. So if you've seen a YouTube video or somebody else with this, just don't, don't spoil it for your neighbor because um, it's there. Elisha, do you think you can come up here real quick and... So this is a rope. So there you go. So, well, I said this first service, like, all eyes are on you. This is much harder than, than you can, you know, hey, look at that. You're an expert now. So we have this rope. This rope represents your existence. This rope that I bought off Amazon has an ending. 
but it's outside the doors and you can't see it. So just in your mind's eye, imagine this rope that we have that just goes on forever for all eternity. This is our existence. And right here, this little red part is our time on earth. And so many times we can get so focused on this little red part. It's like, all right, well, I got school here. I get married. I'm going to work super hard from here to here. So here I can have this some, one long, like, 20-year vacation. <laughs> and we spend so, amen, yeah. It's my wife saying amen. <laughs> 401k. Um, we spend so much time here. But I wonder how, many, how much time do we spend thinking about the rest of all of this? Paul, the apostle, people would come and ask him when he was being beaten and tortured and imprisoned and all these things that would happen to him. People were like, Paul, what is your deal? Why can you rejoice in the midst of all of the suffering you have? And Paul said, was like, because I ain't worried about this. I'm running my race to get the ultimate prize, which is eternal life. Woo, that's, that's woo worthy. There's also a second, I think, aspect of this that's important for us to realize is that while this is short, it's also very important because the Bible tells us that the decisions that we make here affect this. You know, almost like I can take this bit of the red and I can kind of whip it and it kind of goes and it affects all eternity. And this is something that when I look at the amount of time and effort that I spend as a father to my kids, I can think about how much time when in my interactions with my own kids or those around me, how much time I spend in this part. I want to make sure that my family and kids, that we have good food to eat, that we you know, are all having a good time, brush your teeth, go to bed, go to bed, go to bed, go to bed. making sure that we have vacations and they have father-son and father-daughter time and, and everything else. But it's really easy for me to spend so much time on this that I wonder, how much time am I spending with my kids with this? Realizing that while I can't make the decision for them, I can help them when it comes time for their existence. And it's really easy for me, I'll be honest, it's easy when I should maybe be spending time with them, talking to them about this existence. It's easy for me on that Thursday night at 6.45 to turn on that Netflix show and just, all right, let's just do our own thing. I'll scroll on my phone, you do that, as opposed to showing them what this is and why it's important for their lives. Something that us as a kids department here, we're passionate about trying to show families and kids that this is important. So recently, at the beginning of the year, we redeveloped our entire curriculum where we designed it to where now nursery all the way through elementary are learning the exact same thing. And what they're learning, those same themes and concepts are aligned with what we're learning. And we have this little piece of paper here. It's the Puget Sound Foursquare Kids Weekly Family Activities. That every single week, your kids get these. You've probably seen these. I'm not going to ask the percentage of parents who have looked at them um, when they get them, but here 
it talks about the week's story, the memory verse, but also a little family activity time. We make these every single week. A lot of time is spent by one of our kid staff members making these things every week. And the point and the goal with this is, is that we can stop focusing on this little red part together with our family time, but we can focus and partner with you as parents to do this. So let me just encourage you. It's tough. If anybody has an excuse not to do it, I've got the excuse not to do it. I work a full-time job doing insurance, a full-time job as a kid's pastor and four kids. I, I got no time to do that. But it's so easy for me to forget about it. Another thing we asked as a couple months ago when I preached up here as a kids department, we really challenged parents that, hey, if you consider yourself a member of Puget Sound Foursquare in order to help train you, in order to uh, be around and be this example for your kids, get back in our kids' classroom. So we had a say yes board with all these different job descriptions and really just try to set this new expectation. And I just want to thank you for all the parents in this room. I see some that have signed up and have started just getting connected in our kids' classes back there. On uh, every single card that gets filled out, I, I shred the bottom information with the personal information, but I keep those cards up on my wall. And every single time a new person volunteers back in our class, I put it up on my wall as kind of this memorial, like this Thanksgiving that I just am so thankful for the people who said, I'm going to say yes to invest in not only my kids, but other, everyone else's kids. And right below that, I actually went through, and for all the people who go to this church whose kids are back in our kids' classes, who haven't quite said yes yet, I have your names printed out on a piece of paper. <laughs> and I know who you are. <laughs> but... Do you want to know why I know? It's because every single time I go into my office, before I sit down on my computer, I pray for you. Every one of you who aren't yet back there. And I pray that God will change your heart and that you'll get back there. You can keep saying no. I'll keep praying. But it's just so important for us as a church to do this well. All right. It is good. Thanks, Gina. Um... So this example is this picture of justification. It's a one-time thing that just affects all eternity. The second expression that I want to get into here as we wrap up and kind of my final point here is sanctification. It's this other element of salvation. You have justification, one-time event, legal standing, and you have sanctification, another big churchy word. I'll define it here. It says to set apart or to make one holy to set apart or to make one holy. Justification is a legal standing, a one-time thing, but sanctification happens over and over again. Every day, we are continually being made holy and sanctified. And that's a part of salvation. That's a part of how we are saved, is every day, the daily grind. It's interesting, when we think of the Greek word or what it means to be sanctified. The roots of that word are, imagine if you had a box of pens. In those days, I guess they didn't have pens. They had quills or whatever they had. But if you were to take a pen, and if you were to sanctify that pen, it means that you would set it apart from the rest. You'd grab it. I'm going to remove it from everything that's there, and I'm going to use it now. That pen is now sanctified. And it means to make holy and that doesn't quite make sense when you're just thinking about it, but if you go back to our pictures of the two different realms, to be sanctified means God's coming down and taking us from that realm where we're at and pulling us and moving us to the other side. 
We are being set apart. We are being grabbed and removed from where we're at and brought to somewhere we're going to go. To make holy means to make a move from one place to another. And this is something that happens every day. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the thing that when we receive God's salvation, we can become different people. The Bible uses imagery of becoming like the image of Christ, that through our words and actions, we we can become more like him. So I'm going to say something here with this process of sanctification that many of you may disagree with. But I'm taking a play out of Lance's playbook, where I like it, where Lance, Pastor Lance will sometimes just say, I'm going to say something, this is is my Pastor Lance voice, I'm going to say something that you may disagree with, but if you end up going to your Bible and coming into my office and trying to prove me wrong, then we both win, because you went to your Bible. So I'm going to say this thing here, that when it comes to sanctification, that it is impossible for you to displease God. Disappoint God. I was going to get it here. I was like, this place doesn't sound right. It is impossible for you to disappoint God. It is impossible for you to disappoint God. Because if you believe that you can disappoint God, we're making assumptions about his expectations on us that aren't true. We said before that sanctification, the part of salvation through sanctification is us in life walking and stumbling of messing up and God chooses to work with that and sanctify us it's it's crazy how it works that how through my sin and through my problems that is the process of salvation isn't it easier God just to wipe away that one whole side of me but instead this is the way that God chooses to save us The definition of disappointment just in a Webster's Dictionary is to fail to meet the expectation or hope of someone. To fail to meet the expectation of someone. We know that God is omniscient who knows everything that we're ever going to do. And if you believe that you're going to disappoint him, you're saying that, God, you have an expectation on me that I won't sin, that I won't struggle in this area in my life. And then that goes to disappointment. Let me put an example that I think will be helpful kind of to illustrate what I'm talking about. I have kids and I've taught them how to ride bikes. And I mean, man, when a kid, you know, gets on a bike and everything else, it's rough. It's bloody. it's, It's not an easy process to get a kid to ride a bike. And Let's say that I'm an omniscient dad and I know that they're going to fall on this bike 36 times. And on the 37th, they're going to take off and go around the little cul-de-sac. And we start down and we start on this path and my son gets on his bike and starts and falls in the first and the second and the fifth and the ninth and the twelfth time. I've seen that process and how it is so hard and they are so disappointed that they're not able to get on that bike and do what they said they were going to do. So much where you get sometimes where kids will grab the bike and just want to go back and put it back in the garage. Just say, man, dad, you must be so disappointed in me. But what they don't realize is I'm omniscient. I know on the 37th 
36th time you're going to fall, but on that 37th time, you're going to get it and you're going to be so happy you did. Man, are you going to be happy. And many times in our life, when we come up against struggles and disappointment and failure, we have this expectation that we place on ourselves that God does not even place on us. And instead of wanting this relationship between us and God to be farther away, God is standing there and he's calling us to get back on the bike and saying, man, get back on. You only need eight more times in order for you to get this. He's, he's asking me, saying, no, come on. And we're walking away from him, kind of wanting to get away from him, putting distance, saying, you must be so disappointed in me. You must, I must be dirty. You must not want anything to do with me. And God's saying, no, 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 no. Three more times and you're going to get this and you're going to be so happy you did. How many of us have quit before we've gotten to that part thinking that God has sat at us and disappointed us and doesn't want us to get back on. 2 Corinthians puts it this way. I love the way that they put this. Paul, when he's writing, he says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That word sorrow can be translated as grief or almost unease, like the blah feeling. If you were to put that in an actual word, like the that feeling there. And when we fall on our bikes, we have two choices. We can choose the godly sorrow or the worldly sorrow. And they feel the same way. Do do you want to know what the difference is? The difference is, is that one way runs towards God and that way leaves no regrets. What? Way easier said than done. But when we fall and we are in the midst of this muck, when we decided to turn away from God and say, you know what? I don't want to come closer to God and I'm going to use this sorrow to instead turn my way and just pretend he doesn't exist. That's worldly sorrow, this kind that leads to death. We know where that goes and God and Jesus and everybody wants no part in that. It's crazy to me that is mind-boggling to me that how much my sin and struggles and us failing God uses as the way to save us. Sanctification is combined with salvation. And I don't, it's, it's, it's crazy to me because part of me wants to just have that entire part of me gone where I say the prayer and it's just completely gone. But instead God says, no, no, that part in you that causes you to fail and all that angst and all that frustration, I'm going to use that as a part of your salvation. Such a great promise such a great promise to us. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close up in a prayer today. I'm gonna, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray for two things. So first of all, I just want to pray for those of you in the audience, if maybe you're hearing this message and you identify with that criminal on the cross, that person who just is separated and you're just like, wow, I, I look back at this sin that I have and I need a savior. Jesus, what you did for me on the cross that sacrifice you made was perfect. So if everyone could just bow their heads, if that's you, if you identify with that, if you can just take a look and just catch my eye, and I just like to agree with you in prayer that this prayer is for you. I think many times we think that this prayer that we do, this decision, 
is the end of something. It's like, all right, I did it. When really it's only the beginning of an entire lifetime of continually being made holy. So now I want to pray for all of us right now. So Father, as we, as we leave here today and we learned about this wonderful gift of salvation, I pray that those in here, Father, that we would continually be made holy, continually be set apart. And just I love that picture of us being in that world and you just coming down and just plucking us up and setting us apart, removing us from where we're at and to where we're going to go. So I pray for everyone in this room, for those who maybe have put that bike in the garage for their entire life or decades, I pray for that they would bring that back out and realize that what they've been experiencing the entire time thinking that was godly sorrow, but it is not. It is a lie and it is worldly sorrow. I pray, Father, that we would turn towards you and realize that you are a loving Father who is asking us and so excited for us to get back on and to move forward. Thank you for the gift. Thank you that we can spend our entire lives trying to learn and understand your love for us. We thank you and praise you for these words. In your name we pray, amen.